Welcome to the Immigrations Podcast, where we capture the unique stories of Asian undocumented individuals living in the United States. My name is Ju Hong, and I'm a Korean immigrant activist. Hi, everyone. Today we have Annie as our guest. Annie Athar is an impact fellow with the Prime Coalition, a public charity investing in catalytic capital into climate technologies with gigaton scale emissions reduction potential. Annie's focus on climate impact comes on the heels of a highly impactful tenure as an immigrant advocate and technology-driven community organizer. During her time with the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, she was the youngest immigration program officer in America. Her portfolio helped protect 2 million undocumented and vulnerable immigrants from deportation while shaping national narratives on asylum, essential workers, and the bipartisan need for immigration reform. Other highlights of her work, including financing the historic campaign at the Supreme Court to protect DACA, catalyzing a national campaign of immigrant leaders around uh, temporary protected status or TPS. She previously held role in civic tech and as the Texas director of Forward.us. Annie was born in Pakistan, raised in Texas, and spent her life as an undocumented immigrant before obtaining asylum at 26. She lives in the Bay Area, enjoys photography, hiking, cooking, and playing with pets. Annie is excited to start her MBA at Stanford in the fall. Wow, what an impressive resume. First of all, congratulations on getting into Stanford. Thank you, Ju. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, that's huge. And I'm sure a lot of listeners, uh, particularly formal and current undocumented students, may be interested in learning more about your educational path. And you have a very fascinating story, and I would love to cover a lot of ground as much as I can. And let's start with your immigration journey. If you can tell us about your immigration journey and how you got involved in the immigrants movement. Yeah, and you know, I just want to I just want to say at the outset uh, how long you and I have, have known each other and how um, exciting it is to reconnect because. Um, we kind of came up in the movement, I feel like, around the same time. Um, so it's nice to, to reflect back on that. I think the first time I met you in person was, I think I had just graduated and it was at like um, an Apollo conference in Vegas with a That's bunch right. of other. Yeah, with a bunch of other API uh, dreamers. So yeah, how far we've come. <laughs> um, but yeah, let me let me start by talking about my story a little bit. So. Um, my family moved here when I was two years old, and um, they're part of a religious community in Pakistan that is uh, very persecuted. It's called Amadi Muslim. And um, everyone in my family, basically, like extended family, has moved out of Pakistan. I don't have any relatives there anymore. And um, so for almost like 24 years, my parents basically tried to get us on the path to citizenship in, you know, tried all these different options. And um, we, we really saw how the immigration system was kind of breaking apart in the last 30 or so years um, as we pursued our own residency. Um, ultimately, they ended up applying for asylum. Uh, but when I was in college at UT Austin, um, they uh, were, my, my parents were actually raided by ICE because there was a hmm. um, error in, in the paperwork that was filed by our lawyer that we didn't know anything about. Um, oh, and so we, we dropped that. We dropped that lawyer, obviously, but it created, um, you know, it just it just threw us into this completely like 
a complete nightmare because um, my parents were detained for about a month and wow. we had deportation proceedings filed against all of us. And so for the next seven or so years, you know, we were dealing with deportation proceedings and basically like almost my entire 20s uh, was given over to this, you know, this issue of like, are, were we going to get deported, even though this is the only country I've, I've ever really known. Um, right. And so ultimately, we were we were granted asylum at the very like, you know, last minute that we could be in 2017. Um, and we're still waiting for our green cards and things like that, um, because of all the backlogs. But, um, you know, that experience of being thrown into this just this just nightmare, I don't know what else you would call it, is what started me on my own um, career path. And it's, it's also what started my activism on immigration. Mm, wow. I can't believe this one or a few errors that uh, immigration attorney that really impacts individual and entire family case. That must yeah, be yeah. crazy. Yeah. And, you know, we were we were in the process of we were being considered for asylum at the time. So it just put us in this situation where on top of uh, it's not that they completely close your case, but you have to also kind of fight to stay in the country at the same time that you're trying to get them to consider your case. So it just speaks to uh, the fact that, you know, ICE has discretion, 100% discretion over what they do, but there's no accountability or oversight that they would opt to raid and try to deport, you know, people who are in the process or who are still waiting to hear back about their case or people who've been in the you know community for as long as we had been in it. Right, right. And it's very interesting too. I think, you know, some people uh, when, uh, if they're experiencing facing deportation or in the legal status limbo, sometimes they just try to adjust their immigration status on their own and just kind of kept quiet and, trying to figure it out. Um, but you have actually one other route where you decided to publicly speak up and actively involve in the immigrants movement and what motivate you to do that? Yeah, I, I, the first thing that I, uh, that motivated me was I started meeting up with the undocumented youth group, the organizing group on campus. Um, it called it was called it's called the University Leadership Initiative. It's still it still exists at UT Austin, and um, so you know I found like a community of of people who were going through the same thing because it felt so bewildering to me. It felt so surreal that you know I, I found it hard to explain to my friends, to explain to people around me because while we didn't have immigration status while I was growing up, I never before that moment ever thought that I would be kicked out of this country, right? I thought eventually everything would work out. And my parents, for what it's worth, they always reassured us that everything would work out. Because in their minds, they also thought, right, like, we've lived here for so long, and we're, we're trying to do the right thing, right? Like, so many undocumented people are always trying to figure out, like, how they can get out of this situation that they're in. Um, why would they, you know, why would they remove a family like ours or no one ever thought that, that something like that could happen. And so when I first met with uh, the the other students in ULI, they were organizing around in-state tuition. Texas was actually one of the first states, I think the first state to pass in-state tuition for undocumented students. And I realized that like, 
it was so hard to explain to everyone the situation that I was in. And there was no moving past it until there was a more permanent solution in terms of legislation. And then, of course, like towards the end of my years in college, uh, there was the campaign to basically pass DACA, which I also, you know, such a massive campaign that so many people played played a role in. And I also played a role as a student organizer in Texas around that. So so it was kind of this this situation where you have to take your destiny into your own hands because it's not like anyone else is going to kind of step up and do something about it, right? Right, right. And what about when you got involved in the immigrants movement or in the first got in, involved in the uh, your university, um, what was it like in the undocumented spaces uh, in terms of, um, I'll be very curious to know, especially in Texas, I wonder like, uh, have you connected with like, Asian undocumented population. Uh, there's a lot of uh, API undocumented folks are there. Or how did you navigate uh, within the Asian undocumented uh, folks as well, too? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, there are a lot of undocumented API people in Texas. It's it's not that. However, the the legacy of activism and the tradition of um, civic engagement and civic involvement among APIs in Texas is just completely different than it is for uh, people in California and New York in particular. Um, oh. And so I found myself being the only Asian undocumented person everywhere that I was. And and I, I'll also be honest, I, you know, as I was organizing in student groups, I was also meeting um, like like organizers at larger organizations and people who did this for a living and people who had been in the movement for longer than I have. And some of them outright told me that they did not feel like someone like me was ever going to be like a, a, a leader in this space because this is a living wow. issue. Yeah. And so honestly, towards my senior year, this, this particular uh, challenge of feeling isolated by people in the movement and by organizations in the movement, because I was uh, an Asian dreamer from the South, um, was really getting to me. And it, it's really what prompted me to start to reach out to um, different kind of networks of API dreamers around the country, which is how I met you and how I met so many other people. Um, I think, you know, overall, that issue has improved a little bit, but uh, not as much as it should. I don't think that the immigration movement or kind of national narrative is still as inclusive of um, non-Latino folks and non-Latinx folks as it needs to be. Um, I think there's, you know, it, uh, especially in the last few years, we've really seen the the intersection of, of being an asylee or a refugee, um, someone seeking that status and be, being from um, a Black or Caribbean country. Um, and so I do think we still have a lot of work to do to kind of broaden the discourse and be more inclusive. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that um, you've been, you know, sharing your stories and going into different spaces to really uplifting uh, particular voices and really challenge the status quo. And I've seen you in different spaces and you have done a lot of speaking engagement and you have done a lot of organizing and I wonder if you ever got like tired of sharing your own story or burned out from the movement, if at all. Yeah, um, 100%. I think that, and this is something that I still struggle with, but um, basically right after I graduated from college around that time, I made a really intentional choice to separate my story from um, 
kind of my prof my professional grounding as you know I was trying to work in politics and mm -hmm. so I didn't when I would you know be talking to people about like potential job opportunities or things like that like I actually wouldn't tell them about my own experience or if I was collaborating with like a professional organization um, through my job and the reason for that is because and I, I've given this kind of advice a lot to um, like you know younger dreamers and younger immigrants I feel like um, there is a very kind of extractive nature to um, uh, sharing your personal story in the broader context of nonprofit work and political work. It starts off as being very therapeutic for all of us because it's like the first time that we get to publicly own our own experiences instead of being, um, you know, ashamed. But then right. I think it very quickly can get turned into a situation where people are basically like funders or nonprofits or or even politicians are kind of pushing you out there to relive your trauma. But when push comes to shove, I was finding that, you know, those same organizations, when I was reaching out to them and saying, like, could I could you offer me an internship? Could you help my family? They're going through this thing. The answer was always very they were always very dismissive, right? And so one of my um, one of the things I've noticed and I've talked to a lot of younger immigrants about as they've gone through this is that um, is that, you know, the inability of like the broader nonprofit space to move people who are sharing their stories into like a position of power um, also has caused a lot of us to basically realize like years, years into our careers that we're kind of we're kind of behind and we don't have opportunities because we have never been tried to like no one has ever tried to build us up into like leaders who can do very specific things in politics or advocacy or or whatever and so because i kind of like sense that i always i stopped basically leading with my story right and um honestly i think that if i had led with my story some of those things that you described in my bio and in some of the you know leadership opportunities i had they would not have it wouldn't have happened in the same way wow yeah. That's powerful. That's powerful. And I, I couldn't agree more because when I got involved in the immigrants movement and I got an opportunity to share my personal immigration story and it was very therapeutic and it was kind of a way of me to really release my anger and frustration. And there's like a platform to do so. Right. But I feel like I've been continued to being um, being used, if you will. Mm -hmm. And I was like a poster child because I was one of very few Asian undocumented person coming out and sharing story. And so nonprofit organizations keep asking me to, hey, share your story here and there and like nonstop uh, without obviously even getting paid. And at, yeah. at the time I was like, this is a, such a great opportunity for me. And they're really supporting me. And I, obviously they are um, supporting me in, 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 in that sense, but in a larger perspective, sometimes it's like over like utilizing my own story and narrative and their own benefits. And when I really realized um, uh, this, this pattern, I really um, learned how to say no and when I want to share and how I want to share and really own my own narrative. And I think that's one of the reasons why I also kind of started my own podcast, uh, really started by and for undocumented communities. And I wanna have my own agency to tell my own immigration story. 
yeah, it's a great, it's a great platform to own your own story instead of, you know, ha having to do it by someone else's terms. Absolutely. And what else do you think that we need to do within nonprofit organization to ensure that, um, you know, uh, really honoring um, undocumented uh, immigrant stories, but also empowering them and uplifting their voices and help them to really navigate in the different trajectory they want to pursue? Yeah, so I'll, I'll, uh, I'll share I'll share that, you know, uh, a little bit about my time in philanthropy because I was one of the very few directly impacted leaders in philanthropy. And I had um, I had the privilege to, you know, be in a very powerful position in my last role um, when it came to the immigrant rights space. And what I noticed is that while plenty of organizations have documented youth and dreamers and undocumented folks on staff or um, in some kind of you know, working for them in some kind of capacity, um, those people are rarely considered decision makers, right? Mm -hmm. And I feel like I realized very quickly, uh, having no background in philanthropy, coming into a very large role at a at a critical time in, in this country under the Trump administration, that honestly, like that, the job that I did and the job that many funders do could honestly be done um, a lot better <laughs> by people who um, have actually not just lived the issue, but actually worked as organizers and worked in that nonprofit context. And so one of the things that I think the immigrant rights space struggles with, every nonprofit space struggles with, is that the people who have the decision-making power are not the people who are impacted, even though they have shown so much potential, right? Partly because they haven't been given the opportunities to grow as leaders and the opportunities to learn how to do different sorts of things. They've been relegated to like sharing your story or being a junior staff member. But I think there's so much like leadership potential and strategic potential and um, both the nonprofit space needs to do a better job grooming that, but our movement needs to do a better job grooming that, right? Like, again, when I speak to younger immigrants, one of the kind of common complaints I hear from them um, it, even, you know, even though I came up through this kind of organization that was at, at the time functioned as like a lot of, a lot of movement leaders came out of that college group, you know, um, that, that pipeline has kind of gotten a little broken in the last several years. And I, I don't think that we're doing a good enough job to support people, um, once they kind of graduate from college and start getting older and start having more complex you know, challenges in their lives that they're dealing with while still being undocumented. Um, I, I don't think we do have, uh, have like built the right support systems for people just personally and and to, to, to help them grow in their in their careers and in their aspirations. And so, um, yeah, so, so those are just some of the things I have. I think the nonprofit space needs to do a better job, but I think the movement also needs to do a better job of basically building like a more robust pipeline of leaders. Yeah, no, definitely. And, you know, like I've been seeing this pattern where a um, couple of my peers who've been in the movement for the past 10 years, who started off as a grassroots organizer and nonprofit sector, and they kind of transitioned from nonprofit to philanthropy, but mm -hmm. still doing the similar work. And I'm wondering if you see the pattern um, as you uh, went through this um, 
this this process from also being a nonprofit and and public and philanthropy world. And I'm also curious to know what are some really positive um, light as well as improvement that you think you, you've seen within the philanthropy sector? Yeah, um, so I think in for people who aren't familiar, philanthropy is a very hard industry to get into um, in the earlier part of your career. So a lot of people who basically have like an associate level job, for example, which is you can you can consider that entry level, but it's not. They usually have at least like 10 ish years of experience um, working in the nonprofit space or on a particular issue or, you know, something like that. So it's, it's something that like most people can typically get into later in their career versus at the outset. And I was really lucky that I actually, you know, got a major philanthropy job within basically the first five or six years of after graduating college. Um, and that's not, that's not a typical experience. Um, I think that the fact that I'm seeing some more um, directly impacted folks in philanthropy, I was just talking to, um, Jonathan Jays Green the other day, who uh, they served as a VP at Margaret Casey for several years, which is a philanthropy in Seattle. And, um, you know, I have several uh, folks in, you know, several folks in California who are working at places like the California Diamond or the Weingart Foundation, the Weingart Foundation. Um, so I think that those folks being in those spaces is so critical because hopefully as they grow over time as leaders, um, you know, that's like being, being, growing their career in a place where resources are allocated is so critical because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, movement leaders need to be in places like that, right? They need to be at the table and actually calling some of the shots of like what gets funded, what doesn't get funded and why. Um, so I'm really proud to just see so many people get into that work. Um, and I think philanthropy overall is trying to do a, a better job of that. But um, philanthropy is not this like super standardized industry that means like one thing. It can look like a lot of different things. And, and ultimately it is an industry that doesn't have a whole lot of oversight or accountability because it's, it's high net worth individuals giving away their money. And I think in the immigration space, it's very, very challenging because part of what has held the movement back has been the small amount of dollars going into the ecosystem compared to like the need and how big of an issue it is. Um, and I'd like to I like to say that that's changing, but the, but the honest answer is like that's not changing yet. Um, what, what I think kind of needs to be done, though, is instead of maybe focusing on just this very narrow category of immigrants, there's other, there's other things that philanthropy sec uh, philanthropic organizations are finding more traction with, for example, um, climate issues, which is something I'm you know, starting to work on now. So yeah. I, I think we really need to start thinking about this stuff from more of an intersectional perspective, that if you're a funder who isn't interested in funding you know, what's considered like pure immigration advocacy or, or services, um, but you're funding climate issues, then, you know, why not also fund some immigrant rights groups? Because at the end of the day, immigration is such a big picture intersectional issue that touches every aspect of our culture, our, our economy, and kind of our communities, right? So um, I think as a, as a movement and within nonprofits, we need to come up with some more expansive intersectional narratives um, so that we can show people that this is a much bigger issue than just being like this very narrow 
set of, you know, policy priorities around like immigration reform or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, a couple of my friends also in the philanthropy world, and uh, I'm so happy and glad that they're in this um, decision making tables and hopefully we'll continue to help and grow um, other um, undocumented and young generation to step up and participate in those type of uh, leadership roles. Yeah. And let's talk about yeah intersectionality. I think you touched upon it already. Um, I'm, but, you know, I'm also curious to know your current work as an impact fellow at the Prime Coalition. And if you could talk a little bit about the, the role itself and um, if you could touch a little bit more about, yeah, the intersectionality around uh, climate change and immigration and other um, issues that is all like interconnected. Yeah, so um, I left CZI last year and I felt like it was like a really good time to step away because of, um, uh, you know, there were some changes happening within the organization, but also having kind of endured working on immigration under the Trump years, I also felt like, right. you know, I needed a break. I wanted to focus on myself. I felt very um, tra traumatized. That's like the only word for it. And um, I had been thinking about moving away from politics, honestly, for a long time, because it can be so demanding, you know, both physically and mentally. And um, I, I'd always been interested in, in, in climate change. And um, even though climate change has been an issue since we've known it's been an issue since like the 60s or the 70s, um, it was always really hard to think about like what I could do in the space besides maybe, um, you know, like a lot of people who work on it are scientists and they're engineers and they're academics and some, there's some policy people and stuff like that, but um, it didn't really seem like something I could get into. But in the last couple of years, um, because the urgency and the timeline of how long we have to do certain things has become very clear um the the world of kind of people building technology and and doing philanthropy on on this issue has just like ex it's just growing exponentially and so it was a really good time to kind of step away last year from immigration and and turn to climate and one of the things i'll share is that you know when i was at cci i arranged these field trips for some of my colleagues and um, it's funny because like I couldn't go on the field trips because they were international and I still cannot travel abroad. So I would like ask my colleagues to go on them. Um, but one of the field trips was um, in um, my colleagues actually went to um, Honduras and then they went to Juarez, Mexico, and then they came back to El Paso. And then um, the, the goal of these trips was basically to show them one, the enforcement apparatus at the southern border. And two, how misaligned our narrative about that apparatus is compared to the fact that the people showing up are refugees, right? Um, however, they are not legally defined as refugees because, um, or, or asylum seekers, like, there's no such thing legally as a climate refugee. But when they were going down there, one of the things that they said they took away, my, my coworkers, was how many people are being displaced as a result of climate change and how this is just something that's growing that's you know getting worse right um so you know you hear about like gang violence and economic instability and stuff like that but you go even upstream of that and you find that it's because there was a hurricane in the region that like destroyed you know uh, entire towns or that the there's been a drought in guatemala that has collapsed like their uh crop production right um and 
and and yet that like narrative is not um coming back into the discourse of immigration in the way that it used to and so so i was just thinking about like this became really clear to me and um there's been reports that saying are saying like you know in just the next couple of decades there's going to be more than 30 million people in north america who are going to be displaced and are then going to try to like come to you know the canada or the united states as a result of climate change wow um so it's, it's very similar to immigration. It's a very big intersectional kind of macroeconomic issue and um, something that we honestly have like a very tight timeline to um, work against. Wow. Like that's very, did you say 30 million, potentially 30 million? Yeah, potentially 30 million. And I don't remember the timeline, but uh, that is how many people are can could be displaced in the next, I think, couple of decades just in you know, the, like the Western hemisphere or something like that. Wow. Like what can people do in the meantime? Like it just immediately, like uh, anyone can do to kind of support and just really fight and advocate for um, climate issues. Yeah. So it, it's a, it's a really big set of issues. So part of it is I think figuring out what, what appeals to you the most. But I think learning about what we need to do can help people make um, some some more informed choices from the perspective of, of being consumers, right? Like if you have the um, ability to do things like, you know, put up solar panels in your house and stuff like that, um, those are things you absolutely need to do. But it's a hard question uh, to, to answer because it's a very systematic it's a very systematic issue and we need systematic yeah. solutions. Um, so, you know, I encourage people to figure out what they want to do and are passionate about from their own perspective. But the big picture thing and the most urgent thing I think any ordinary person could do is actually to start pressuring uh, policymakers and government officials because they're the ones that actually hold the key in terms of being able to deploy um, the solutions and create the kind of market conditions um, and policy conditions to deploy some of the things that we need at scale and in the timeline that we need, right? Um, So one, step one, educate yourself about the issue. It can feel really overwhelming and abysmal, but there is a way out. And two, like start figuring out how you can talk to your policymakers about this, because that's one of the most important things that needs to happen. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that anyone can do their own part, uh, even small things, as you mentioned, to start there and also really pressuring and advocating um, uh, calling representatives to do their job um, addressing this issue. I think that's definitely critical. I want to dive into your uh, career trajectory. Um, now um, you are still um, as an impact fellow, but recently um, you got accepted to an MBA program at Stanford. And I'm curious to know uh, your, your career path and just your decision to attend the Stanford Business School. Yeah, so I actually started thinking about business school um, even before I joined CZI. So I think I started thinking about it in like 2018 or so. Wow, um, it's been a while. Yeah, and it took me a long time to get here because of the challenges that like my family was facing. Um, you know, no, actually it was before 2018. It was probably just a couple of years after I graduated from college. I, I was thinking about grad school and I landed on business school because 
I, um, I wanted the opportunity to be able to do more than just politics and working mm. in social impact for this long. I'm kind of pigeonholed as like uh, a nonprofit person. So, so that was one reason. Um, the other reason was, and I, I think this became really clear to me when I was at CZI and working in philanthropy, was that a, a lot of people from our kinds of communities um, have the strategic insight of how uh, resources need to be deployed, but we don't have an understanding of how they're managed or access to capital, right? And um, and so I see I see this happen all the time since I have my foot in like a, several different worlds, right? Where the, where the movement people they got the ideas and they they have the things that need to be done. They know what needs to be done. And then, but the people in charge of the capital don't. And so there's like this like misalignment that happens in this. And um, and so I, I really uh, feel like, you know, learning some of the things um, that I get to learn in business school and honestly, like having some access to some of the networks that it opens up for you is going to be really important as I think about how um, I want to make an impact on the world uh, by working on climate issues. And, and the last thing I'll say is, and I'll, I'll just be really straight up about this, is that, like, I feel like people of color in particular, I hear this a lot from women of color, that you have to do more to seem credible. And yeah. so I spent a lot of time going back and forth on whether I even needed to go back to school. And where I landed was, I'll go back if I get into a really good school. Um, but... I do want to just say out loud that sometimes people just go back to school because they're finding that even though they can do the work as people of color, or as women or as queer people or whatever, they're just not being given the same respect and credibility. And so yeah. we do have sometimes have to do these extra kind of things to get to where other people are. Wow. That's powerful. And I wonder how can we change that? Yeah, I, I, I think it's kind of, it's a little tautological because part of it starts by having different sorts of people in power, right? Like when I was at CTI, I hired people who would never otherwise get opportunities and experience in philanthropy and in, in working in that kind of environment. And they did their job really well. You know what I mean? They didn't, they weren't people who had gone to the fancy schools or had the kind of you know, resume that so many people in politics have where they worked for like a president or did this or did that. But they, I knew that they could come in and they could do the job. And it's, but it's very hard if you are someone who's a leader, uh, for example, like a, a, a white leader who has a very particular background for you to see beyond, for you to see beyond like your own experiences and, um, and to see like what kind of biases are embedded in, um, in, in your worldview. But, but more than that, honestly, you probably just don't know like different sorts of people. Like, I feel like we live in a very kind of like siloed and segregated kind of country right now. And so even if even when I meet leaders who are kind of like really progressive and open minded, when you dig into this, they probably just don't have any relationships beyond their own kind of networks. Right. So I think I think part of it is is that you need like certain different sorts of people in leadership positions who can who can bring in that those different networks and ideas and then start to kind of institutionalize them. Um, and, and I think like, you know, also people, marginalized people, immigrants, undocumented people shouldn't be turned away from fighting for leadership positions. Like it's going to be hard. It's going to, 
you know, it's going to be hard it's, and it's not going to be like some, the most pleasant experience at times. But if you feel like you can do something, then you need to kind of keep pushing until people take you seriously and give you an opportunity to do it. Or you need to create the opportunity to do it, you know? Got it. And what would you give advice to undocumented youth who are aspiring to go to business school, um, especially how to navigate, um, you know, uh, connections and networks as well as resources and getting funding? I think this are like one of the main challenges that undocumented students are going through. And I'm curious to know if you were to kind of sit down and talk with a formal or current undocumented students who may be interested in attending business school, what type of advice would you give them? Yeah, so I'll I'll make a, a plug that like, if you're an undocumented student listening to this podcast, and you're interested in applying to an elite business school, like, I'll sit down and talk to you for 30 minutes to an hour, because this is a it is a brand like it is like a world like having to do these kinds of grad admissions was a brand new experience for me um you know there's the things that people who traditionally go to these schools will tell you but then there's also the story that you know you realize and the the information you understand as someone who who's coming at these opportunities from a disempowered position. So I, I really feel obligated to be able to like, you know, share um, and support people however I can. So there's like a list of programs that I also recommend people start with that, you know, I, I can share if anyone wants them. Um, um, so that, that's one thing that I'll just say. But the other thing that I'll say is that um, uh, uh, you can, you need to think about your, um, you need to think about education as a tool and not an outcome, right? And yeah. I, I say that because there was no guarantee that I was going to get into Stanford or anywhere else. And um, there, I had like a plan for how I would spend the next year or two if I didn't go back to school. And so, um, you know, this, this whole process is not a measure of like your worthiness of anything, but it's just one way, uh, one one way to get to a particular outcome. So, you know, think about what that outcome is and work backwards from there and then figure out how school fits into this. You're not you're not like going to business school just so you can say you can go to business school. You're you're going there because you want a particular kind of job, because you want some kind of opportunity, because there's an industry that you're really interested, a skill you're interested in. Or maybe you're like me and you actually want time to think about what you want to do. And that's also like that's also a very valid outcome, right? Like, I don't know what job I want to have in two years, but I know that I can, I want like a, some time to be able to like figure that out, right? Um, so don't like, don't attach yourself to the outcome of like where you get in or, or getting in period. Like think about what you want to, what is school going to help you kind of accomplish and, um, and kind of go from there. Mm, no, that's a really great advice. And you know, when I look at your trajectory, whether it's career or educational path, I think that you are doing a lot of great things. And how do you do all that? I don't know if it's, we only have 24 seven. And it seems like you're doing so many great things. And I'm really curious to know, like, how do you take care of yourself during this uh, time of difficulties, we're in the phase of pandemic, 
And, you know, even though we're out of this Trump administration phase, but we're still dealing with a lot of uh, deportation, still there's a lot of backlog around immigration. There's a lot of issues that are happening externally, but internally, like personally and professionally, we'll, we're, like you said, we're still fighting and pushing for to be in that position in power and leadership role. And, and you have to kind of uh, go through all that. And so uh, I'm curious to know, how do you take care of yourself and, um, uh, and folks who are in that kind of similar shoes as you, like what type of advice would you give them? Yeah. Um, so I, I'll share something, which is that, you know, having been around a lot of people who have like wealth, power and privilege, I think one of my biggest takeaways is that the the thing that really sets them apart and in terms of be, in terms of being able to maintain their life um, is that they are able to focus on their health and wellness. That is such a privilege, and it's a privilege that a lot of us are uh, are denied, and that we really have to find ways to build back into our lives, right? The habits to build back into our lives because. Uh, Success is truly like like an iceberg. Like people only see kind of what the outcome or the big flashy news, but they don't see like all the all the uh, like the unpleasant moments associated with it, which I have had plenty of. Um, when I uh, inter- had my interview at Stanford, um, I was so stressed out, and I and I'm saying all this to basically say I don't do a good job of managing my stress, and it's one of the it's one of the biggest takeaways I've had in like the last few years as something that needs to change if I want to um, be able to have like, not just like, it's not even about a career, it's about like live like a healthy and happy life, which, you know, I, w- I want for myself. Um, but I, but it's a huge challenge because I'm having to unlearn a lot of really um, habits that are embedded in me because of poverty and trauma and stress. And, um, um, when I had my interview at Stanford, I was so stressed out that a couple of days after the interview, my like jaw seized up and I, I like literally passed out on the sidewalk in Palo Alto and smashed my face and Whoa. yeah, and I like cut my face open. <clears throat> my boyfriend was there. He like came and he took care of me. I ended up being fine. It, it could have gone a lot worse, but that, that moment was like a really crazy wake up call for me. Um, that like, Hey, this next phase of your life is going to be pretty intense and you have to like be at your best and create the time that you need to do things like eat well, exercise, um, identify when you feel stressed and work to relieve it. Right. That's, that's like a habit that I'm still trying to figure out because I'm so used to being disconnected from like my body and just focusing on work. And so these things are very important. I'm not like a role model for this kind of stuff, but I, I, I'm, what I will tell you is that, like I said, like it's probably my biggest priority between now and school starting is to get into like a cadence of healthy habits every day um, because that is the thing that is like the biggest privilege that that people have compared to marginalized people is their ability to take care of their minds and their bodies and it is something that is so denied to marginalized people who you know have to work in specific conditions or um, don't feel like they have the opportunity to take care of themselves. Um, and it's not a, it's not something you'll you'll learn how to do overnight, but you know, especially if you're a little bit younger and listening to this 
this podcast, it is something that you have to figure out how you're going to do for yourself. Yeah, no, definitely. And for me, I'm also having that challenge as well, too. And, you know, there's moments and times where I have opportunities to really take care of myself, uh, my mind and my body. And I'm the only one in my family who have uh, DACA and I get to travel outside of the country or and travel domestically uh, without um, you know, worrying about facing deportation. And sometimes when I you know, travel um, as a vacation, you know, at, at that moment, like I feel good, I'm taking care of myself, but in the back of my head, like I feel a little bit guilty, like, cause I know that when I go back home, like I know that like my family is working and I'm like just enjoying this time. And sometimes I feel so guilty, this privilege that I have, especially when I went back to South Korea for the first time and my family couldn't uh, go back and I'm the only one who could go and see my relatives. And I, I carry this burden with me and it's been very difficult and challenging. And I'm wondering if you, you you resonating with that and um i, I know that you're still kind of having this challenge uh, but um how would you like you know navigate in this type of situation this guilt and privilege um especially within the family dynamic with the mixed status families uh, that we all going through different journeys and challenges because of the status um, within this, uh, this system? Yeah, great question. And, you know, I, I wish I had a quick answer to this. I, I experience a lot of this on my own because I live away from my family. Um, and, uh, I, I mean, part of the, part of the things I think that both a, a lot of us work this hard and do the things that we do so that we can also provide for them. And particularly in, in the context of, I think, and immigrants and Asian communities that is like that's not really the logic that they that they use right that you have to take care of yourself so that you can provide for others we're probably filled our heads are filled with examples of people who sacrificed their minds and their bodies to provide for their children and their families and so I I, I don't have an easy answer for this and I struggle with all of this myself but I also kind of think about how I'm, I am working this hard so that I can do things like retire my parents in the next couple of years. You know, hopefully that's my goal. I don't know if we'll get there, but like, that's my goal. Right. Um, and provide for, for people in my family. Um, but it's, I think it's also about having to break kind of intergenerational uh, trauma and having to break the intergenerational aspects of like bad habits being passed on. Because at the end of the day, like, and I, I, I say this to some of my friends, like I have friends who refuse to go to the doctor, they have DACA, because their parents can't go to the doctor at all, right? Or they might be medicine. And I'm like, your parents did not bring you here and go through that so that you don't go to the doctor, you know what I mean? Right. <laughs> so like, who are you, who are you, like, what, who is it benefiting that you're, you're working yourself 80 hours a week and not going to the doctor for your you know, uh, for whatever you're dealing with, like, at the end of the day, taking care of yourself is what allows you to take care of your family. And um, so you need to see it in not just as like a selfish thing, but as like an investment in a greater, in a greater context. Th that all said, it's 
easier said than done, right? Like I wish when I went go on vacation or something that like my mom could come or like she definitely deserves it more than I do. You know what I mean? But I, right. yeah, but I but I also like you know over the years I've like started taking her places and trying to do little things for her and like ultimately I know that I'm working this hard and need to take care of myself so that I can support them too. Absolutely, no, that's a great great advice and great goal. Um, I hope you accomplish that. And um, I also have a similar goal. So I hope to really help my family and uh, and they don't have to work anymore uh, in the near future. Uh, just uh, two more questions for you. Um, what brings you joy? Um, great question. I think uh, the, the pandemic has made my world a lot smaller and um, I have a lot of anxiety about like, you know, for the last two, three years, I haven't had to like get up and drive somewhere to work. And now I'm going to have to do that with school and interact with all okay. sorts of people. So, so it gives me joy tomorrow. Today is a little different than what it might be in like six months. But these days I find a lot of joy in spending time with my partner. Um, uh, I find a lot of joy in um uh, spending time with our pets. He has a really funny dog and I have a cat and it's always just funny to see them hanging out together. And um, I also find a lot of joy in being in nature and spending time outside and in connecting with like people that I care about, like having kind of that quality time to talk to and catch up with people that I, that I really care about. So th those are a couple of things. That's awesome. Yeah, when I look at your uh, social media, it's a bunch of like nature and your pets, and it's so therapeutic for for me too. Just to scroll down your 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 page, and I'm like, wow, that's very that's that brings me joy as well too. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> but by the way, the Yosemite photos are amazing. Yeah, I love. Oh my gosh, it's so it's so incredible being in California. That's one of the things I. I uh, tried to try to do because it's going stir crazy during the pandemic was there's so much nature here that, you know, you can go explore. Yes, yes, absolutely. Last question for you. What advice would you give to yourself, your younger self and why? Um, that's a great question. Um, the first thing that comes to mind is something like uh, that something's like life's not going to look like what you thought and that's okay. Right. I, and it's something that I, I'm not going to lie. I still struggle with, especially being in jobs and industries and educational environments where people come from a lot of privilege. Like I do feel very resentful at times of all the things that I've had to go through and people that I know have had to go through. Right. Um, and just, yeah, it's, it can be a really tough burden to bear. I'm going to be a little bit older than most of the people in my class at Stanford, not by a whole lot, but like maybe like three or four years. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's not that, that big of a deal to me, but it is something that I kind of think about because, um, I have to remind myself still that like, just because you got, you got here at a, at a, four years later than everyone else doesn't mean that you got here late. It just means your time timeline was different, right? And I think that 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 again go, also goes back to this idea of like there's a lot of things that we think are outcomes, such as the school that we go to, but they're actually just tools. And 
the, there's a lot of ways to get to whatever your desired outcome is. And my desired outcomes are actually not no longer about jobs and like things like that. They're about the kind of life that I want to live, right? Um, and the kind of people that I want to be around. So, um, so just, but if I, you know, ask me, if you ask me that question, like 10 years ago, when I was like, at the height of like my immigration trauma, um, that that answer would have been completely different. Um, So yeah. And what would it be? You know, I I don't know, because like I said, like, it was such a dark and traumatizing moment for me. Like, I don't even know if 10 years ago, I could have told you where I would have been in the next year or two, right? And I think that's like a common thing among undocumented folks, right? Like when we got DACA, we got to think about our lives for two years at a time. (laughs) And so, um, so yeah, I don't even know what I would have said 10 years ago. Wow. Yeah, that is so true. And I'm sure uh, a lot of people who are listening uh, this podcast are really inspired by you and then how far you've come. And what I really appreciate you about you is that uh, you've been really challenging the status quo and not afraid to speak the truth. And I think that's really important. And we need more people like you in the movement. And you've been really pushing yourself um, in, 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 in personal and professional capacities, despite all the obstacles and challenges, um, inspiring a lot of people and uh, breaking the ceiling, uh, especially for women of color and undocumented folks. Um, they themselves also want to pursue their dreams and aspirations. Um, with that, you know, people who want to follow you and learn more about your work and follow your journey, like um, how can they do that? Yeah, I think compared to your other your other uh, podcast uh, speakers, they probably can't because I've become a very private person uh, during the pandemic. And I, I don't know when that is going to change. However, um, like I said, if you want to talk about uh, if you want to talk about business school or ideas about grad school or anything like that, and you're an undocumented person um, or formerly undocumented, I would love to help you. Um, you can email me. My email address is my first name dot my last name at Gmail. So Annie.athar at gmail.com. Or you can ask Ju and he'll give you my email. Do you have my permission? Um, like, yeah, if you're if you're an undocumented person or a younger person coming up in the movement and you want to talk about careers, you want to talk about school or you just want to talk, like hit me up. I That's the place I feel like I'm at my best is just one on one conversations. So um, that's probably the way that you can keep up with me until I decide to um, have public social media. <laughs> <laughs> right on, right on. Well, thanks again. And I really appreciate you. Yeah, and I appreciate you so much for creating the space uh, for all of us, Drew. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't want anyone walking away from this uh, podcast also to feel like you have to do all these like big fancy things. I think right. a lot of it is just a lot of life is just finding your own joy and what keeps you going day to day. So I encourage you to to figure out what the answer is for yourself and actually not look towards what other people are doing as like a standard that you have to get to or anything like that. You know. Yes, I think that's very important. Thanks for that. Okay, well, thanks again, and then we'll talk again soon. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Also, follow me on Instagram at Immigrations. See you at the next episode.